The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, Money Matters. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 2 Corinthians 9, 6-15. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is the word of the Lord. A lot going on this morning, um, but I think I would be remiss not to take a moment here. First off, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors. If you are worshiping with us, we do welcome you. Um, Our church has been praying for years for a couple different things. And one of them was for one of our members' um, daughter to receive a heart. She needed a heart transplant, 22 years, I think, 21, 22 years of praying for this. Um, and then the second one was for the Bergtolds to, to get a baby. They've been praying for uh, adoption in, in the adoption process for several years. We had a trivia night, raised some money, support for them, like to probably three years ago. And in God's providence, he answered both of these prayers on the same day last week. So Hannah is in Chicago. She got her new heart. I see the new baby listening to to this sermon right now. So praise the Lord for that. Yeah. God is very good. Well, I want to start off this morning by apologizing. I'm sorry that I haven't talked about money much before now. Uh, When I started Sacred City Church almost seven years ago, one of the most consistent objections uh, of my unbelieving friends to coming to church was the feeling that the church just wanted their money. Many of them had heard of church scandals, financial improprieties, embezzlement, and pastors with airplanes. And this was a huge turnoff, as it should be, and it kept many of them from attending church and hearing the gospel. To reach these folks, I decided to not take a weekly offering by passing a plate around, and I decided to really not talk about money that much. Then, as our young church began to grow, and some of you came from other churches that you told me talked about money all the time, I heard that These churches always had some huge financial need that required extra giving. And some of the needs might have been legitimate, but many seemed 
excessive. Uh, the pastor was consistently in fundraising mode, and that just wore you out and turned you off. Well, when I heard those stories, internally, I said to myself, don't be that guy. And uh, I've tried not to be that guy for about seven years. And I don't want to put that kind of burden on God's people, especially if it's a pastor's own ambition or desires that are driving the request and not the mission of God. And then on top of all that, God has just been gracious to us financially from the get-go. We've always had our need, needs met. Our people have given pretty consistently without making me talking about it very much. And that kind of confirmed my original hypothesis. I don't really need to talk about money very much. Well, apparently I was wrong about that and I should not have waited seven years. Several of you have came up to me on the past few weeks and just said that the sermon series has already had an impact uh, on your faith and your relationship with God and your relationship with money. And you've, you, you've rebuked me for not doing it sooner. Well, I received the rebuke. Thank you for that. And I repent. So now we're just going to talk about money every week for the rest of our lives. <laughs> now, let me just joke. We've only got two weeks left of this. Uh, let me pray. And I'm going to get into our text this morning. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is a stark reminder that we don't know how to live our life correctly. It is a stark reminder that we need someone from outside of us to step in front of us and, and wave and say, this is God, this is his way, this is how you should live. And your word is that reminder for us. It's the one who gets in front of the things that we pursue, the desires that we have, the life we want to build. And you remind us of the, the greatest gift that you gave for us, Jesus, and how to follow him and give up our life for his sake, which is a blessing and a joy and the path to our real life, which is hidden in Christ, in God. Would you help me this morning? Would you think through my mind and speak to my vocal cords and allow me to open up your word and decipher its meaning that's pretty clear this morning and teach it to your people. Give us faith to believe it. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Well, if you could open up your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 through 15. You can find it on your Bible app. Um, or the, there's Bibles in, the, in some of the, the chair coverings in front of you. Now, we've been studying Jesus' words on money in the Sermon of the Mount for the past three weeks. And today, we're kind of pivoting. Today, we're pivoting to the Apostle Paul's words written down in a letter to the Corinthians. And since we are jumping into a new book, it's really important that we understand a little bit of the context. We got to understand what's going on in this letter to the Corinthians. <clears throat> Here's what's going on. The church in the city of Corinth was much like ours. It was pretty, it was relatively young and it was relatively well off financially. Now, hold on, push, you, push, you push back. You might be looking around, I don't know who you're talking about is well off financially. You don't know my budget. You don't know my bank account. Well, you might not think that you're well, you know, well off financially, but if you make minimum wage or more, you're in the top 5% of the richest people in the history of the world. Top 5%. So by any historical standard or any global standard, if you're making minimum wage, 
you are rich. So when we see the word rich or hear the word rich in the Bible, we should think, oh, he's talking to me. So the church in Corinth was pretty financially affluent. But here's the, here's the kicker. At this time, when this letter's being written, Judea was going through a terrible famine. And so the church that was in Judea, the church in Jerusalem, was in dire straits. So I want you to see the picture here. As one church flourished in Corinth, another church was in, difficult, in a difficult financial season in Jerusalem. Okay? They were in desperate need of relief, of resources, and food. <clears throat> and now listen, here's the reality. As we continue um, to grow and to plant churches as Sacred City Church, this reality is going to come true for us as well. One church might be financially prosperous. Another church might be in difficult circumstances. As one church is dealing with flooding and, the, and, and, stuff, and all the chaos that goes on there, another church might be dealing with hurricanes or tornadoes or whatever. As we plant churches in different parts of the country and even in parts of the world as we're planting many churches in Kenya, one church might flourish Another church might be in difficult uh, times. So what's going, what needs to happen? Well, the Apostle Paul, as the leader over these churches, this collection of churches, he has to do some fundraising for the church in Jerusalem. Now, we don't, I hate that word. Okay, that conjures up all kind of bad images in my mind. Now, some of you just flat out don't want preachers to talk about money. I get it. You don't want us to take offerings. I get it. You don't want us to try to raise funds. I get it. We do it because the Apostle Paul did it. We do it because the Bible teaches us to do it. So Paul did it. It's going to be a necessary part of our calling. And so get used to it. All right. When the needs arise, we've got to do it. But here's the key, here's the key that we're going to learn from the Apostle Paul. The way we go about fundraising really matters. In fact, I bet many of us have a visceral reaction to appeals for money. Not because we don't want to give, we don't want to be gener generous, but because of the way the appeals are given, it, it's often a turnoff. I think most of the time people try to use, I think, three tactics when it comes to asking for money. One, guilt. Uh-oh. Cue the sad music, the malnourished dogs, and Sarah McLanahan voiceover, right? This approach wants to grip us with a sense of guilt. Oh, no, right? Make us feel bad for having more than somebody else or having a little bit of extra, right? Make us feel bad. Look at our dog. He gets three meals a day. <laughs> right? It's trying to grip our sense of guilt and then open our wallets or open our hands to this need. Now, what happens is I think if you use guilt to motivate giving, eventually it backfires because we can only handle so much. Right? If you're like me, I've watched the, the, the dog commercial. Soon as I hear, poop, I'm changing the channel. I ain't got time to see that. I don't want to hear about that. I've heard about it before, right? Now, here's the reality. We live in a social media culture, internet culture. There's always things to feel guilty about in front of us. 
There's always poverty. There's always lots of things that, lots of people that are struggling and in dire straits out there. And if that's always in our news feed, our guilt literally just kind of wears off and we can become hardened to those needs. In a sense, I don't think human beings are meant to know all the needs of the world. We can't handle it. We need to know the needs of our neighbors and those in our community and those that we can actually do something about. So oftentimes this backfires. We end up just looking away from the need. So let's not use guilt. Now, the second approach is very popular, and it's to use pride to motivate giving. Now, how do you use pride? Pride is the pep talk, motivational speaker approach that tells us how awesome we are or how awesome we will be if we give to this need, right? We won't be like those selfish people over there, those greedy Americans, those top 1%. We won't be like those. We'll be generous people. We'll be those who go out there to make a difference in the world. We'll be the change we want to see in the world, right? All of these approaches, all of these little slogans are ways to get in and kind of motivate us by pride. Why should you give? Because you're awesome. That's why. Awesome people give right? Now, the third approach is to just demand it. Now, this is the approach our government takes with our taxes, <laughs> right? Now, it's interesting how many times in this letter to, to the Corinthians that Paul refuses to make a demand. He refuses to use his position of authority and saying, all right, this church over here needs it, Give your money. We have to meet this need, right? Paul says, I'm not demanding that you give to this need. He says, I'm not forcing you to do this. He says, I want it to be a willing gift from you, not something done under compulsion. The apostle Paul purposely avoids all three of these forms of manipulation when he asks for the Corinthians' money. He doesn't use guilt. He doesn't appeal to their pride. And he doesn't demand them to give. He doesn't say, I'm an apostle. Why do, why do you need to do it? Because I said so. That's why. He doesn't use it. What Paul does is remind these Christians of the economy of the kingdom of God. God's economy runs on different economic principles as our human economy does. God's economy runs on grace. And in God's economy, money is the currency of grace. Now, let me explain. Let's jump into our text this morning. First of all, I want us to see that money comes to us by grace. Look at verse 10. Actually, I'm going to start, I'm going to go and start with verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely, is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Look at verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase. Now, what's he saying here? Now, I've already said this before in this series, so I'm just going to be really brief here because we have to kind of keep beating this concept into our head. 
Paul is telling the Corinthians, everything we have is a gift from God. God gives seed for, this, for us to sow. He's talking about money. Our money is a gift of God's grace. Now, you say, I don't know if it's a gift of God's grace. I worked pretty hard for it, right? Now, grace isn't opposed to effort. Grace is, a, grace is opposed to earning, okay? So Paul's not saying you didn't work for your money, Paul's saying, what did you use to work for your money? Think about the tools you've used, right? You've been working with the tools that God gave you. Those tools that you've used were a gift of his grace. You've been using his resources, right? It is his air you've been breathing, right? It's his, it's his planet you've been walking on. But also, it's a gift of his grace, your DNA. You didn't earn that, Right? The fact of the matter is, you, maybe you're very successful. That is great. Where would you be now if you were born a thousand years be before Christ in China? Where would you and your intellect be then? You would still be poor, impoverished rice farmers, more than likely, right? The reason we are successful, much of it is a gift of being born in this country, at this time, with these parents, in this community, in this economic system. And so the majority of what we have is actually not because we're awesome and we're super gifted and super hardworking, but because God has been gracious to us in his providence. Now, so first, money comes to us by grace. This is part of God's economic system. Secondly, money is meant to be the currency of grace. Look at verse 11. You will be enriched in every way. Woo, we like that verse. Highlight that sucker. <laughs> we will be enriched in every way. Come on. Now we're talking. Let's keep reading. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Do you see that? Money is meant to be the currency of grace. We are enriched. The reason, one of the reasons God has made us the top 5% in the history of the world is so that we can be generous. Now, what's going on in our context? Remember the church in Jerusalem? They've got two desperate needs. I'm going to tell you, one physical, one spiritual. The first is physical. Some people think that preachers shouldn't talk about money. But the church in Jerusalem was struggling to have enough food to eat. Now listen, they didn't need, they didn't just need the gospel. They didn't just need spirit. Oh, they're struggling. Oh, they're hungry. They haven't had to. We'll pray for you, brothers. We'll pray for you. Right? Here's a couple of Bible verses. Read those. That's oh, really difficult. Man, that must, whew, that's hard. That's hard. No. They needed food. 
They needed money. They needed resources to alleviate their physical needs. So Paul doesn't just ask the Corinthians to remember their brothers in Jerusalem and to pray for them. He says, no, they need your money. Look at your circumstance in life. The reason you're wealthy right now is so that some of those some of that resource can be funneled to your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem and you can meet their physical needs. Your increase will lead to them, will help bless them. But obviously our needs are never just physical. And so the church does more than just feed the poor and help the sick and push resources around the globe to those who are suffering. We also have spiritual needs the church in Jerusalem here, they're hungry, but they're also, do you know what it's like to try to worship God and you ain't got any food in your cupboards? Right? They're discouraged. When they're looking around and they see no economic prospects among them, right? It's a drought and their, the, their fields are, are dried up and they don't see any hope for the future. These folks are discouraged. It's really hard to follow Jesus. It's really hard to worship God when your basic needs aren't met. So Paul says, the money has come to you, Corinthians, for ministry to those in Jerusalem. And when we give our money to needs like that, we're doing something special. We are meeting physical needs, and we're also meeting spiritual needs. Look at verse 11, how he finishes there. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Look, which through us will produce what? thanksgiving to God. What's he saying? You're going to meet these guys' needs in Jerusalem, and you know what they're going to do? Thank God. He met our needs. Now, God did not drop money out of heaven. He could do that. He's done it before. He's done manna in the wilderness. How does God choose to do it? They didn't just walk out and open their mailbox, and there was a box of cash. He did it through the believer's obedience in Corinth. Okay? Now, look again. Let's look at verse 12. For, here it is, there's the word, ministry of this service is not only, look, supplying the needs of the saints, that's the physical needs, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. He says it again. As we meet their physical needs, they worship God. They thank God. That is a, that's a spiritual reality that's happening. God is being glorified. Look at verse 13. By their approval of this service. So because they say this is good that you gave money for us. They will what? Glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Paul is saying here that, we, that you, your giving is meeting physical needs and it's meeting spiritual needs. It's filling people's bellies and it's also filling their souls with thanksgiving to God. That's in a sense the mission of our church. We want to meet physical needs. We want to meet spiritual needs. And how does that happen? It, it happens through the use of generosity, by, by using money as a currency of grace. Now, also, that church in Jerusalem is meant to be on mission to an entire region that is in need. And those who do not know Christ, they need food and they need salvation. They have, of course, physical needs and spiritual needs. And if the church doesn't have the resources to meet their own needs, how will they be able to reach out to their unbelieving neighbors and provide relief, 
right? Here, Paul is showing the Corinthians, money is the currency of grace. When you've received more of it from God, you're meant to give more of it to meet others' needs. And by being obedient to this, by being in God's economic system of the kingdom of God that runs on grace, they're going to be meeting physical needs and spiritual needs, and that's going to result in the thanksgiving and worship of God. Now, this is important for us to see and understand. One of the most surprising details of this passage is how Paul uses the words money, seed, grace, giving interchangeably. He's wanting us to see that grace should affect your money. It's given to you from God. Listen, it's meant to be seed. What do you, what do, you do with seed? Listen, if our money is seed, it's meant to be sown, not eaten. If you eat it, that's all you get. And that's spending it on ourselves. You spend your money on yourself, guess what? You get what you got. You got a thing, that thing is fun for a little while, then that thing begins to degrade over time and it loses its value and you lose your joy in it and that thing goes to the garage sale or that thing goes to the junkyard. You get what you got. You're eating your seed. But when you sow your seed, when you give your money away generously to the poor, to the church, to the work of the kingdom of God, that seed, what happens when you put seed in the ground? What happens when you sow seed? It produces a harvest. In this text, he calls it a harvest of righteousness. It doesn't just bring back more of the same thing. He's not just saying if you give more of your money away, God will give you more money. That's not what he's saying. Does that come with it? Sometimes, not guaranteed, but it's going to produce a harvest of righteousness. What's that mean? It's going to do a lot of good out there. When you're giving that money away, it's going to do a lot of good at alleviating the hurt, pain, curse, suffering in our world. Money is meant to be the currency of grace. Now, lastly, third point on God's economic system maybe the most important. The gospel of grace turns us into merchants of grace. The gospel of grace turns us into merchants of grace. I want you to look at verse 9. As it is written, this is, talk, this is the righteous man. Paul is directly quoting from Psalm 112. It says this, the righteous man or woman, that's he, it's not God here, it's the righteous man or woman, has distributed freely, has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now, I want, to, I want us to remember what we learned in the first week. In the first week, we learned that through giving, we are making deposits into an eternal treasury in heaven. Remember? Jesus said, don't store up wealth for yourself on this earth where rust and moth, right, can get at it. It's going to... It's go you're going to lose its value. You're going to lose it eventually. He says, no, give it away by making deposits into this eternal treasury, this bank account that we have in heaven. Well, that's exactly what the psalmist is saying. Of the righteous man or woman gives money away, gives their resources away, has given to the poor, his righteousness or her righteousness endures forever. That you've got something in that eternal bank account that's going to go on and on forever. 
Now, this is how a Christian operates and functions in the kingdom of God. Does that verse describe you? Are you a person who distributes freely? Or do you spend all your money on you? You hoard it or you spend it. Or your family or your hobby or your vehicle or your house or your thing all on what you like, what you want, what you need. Do you give to the poor? And I don't mean like dropping a few change in the Salvation Army bucket during Christmas. I mean, give in such a way that it actually impacts your standard of living. It hurts you. It makes an impact. You have to cut things out of your budget. You have to change some things. Do you give liberally to your church and to the kingdom of God? See, this is not describing some kind of superhero Christian, some kind of special forces Christian, some kind of elite member of Christianity at the top that we look up and, wow, look at that generous person up there. No, 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 this is just normal. This is the person who's righteous, the person who's accepted Christ by faith. Now, if you look at yourself and you go, I'm feel, you're, you're right now, you're mad at me. Right now, you're mad at me. You're looking for a way out. You're looking for a but. You're looking for an and. You're looking for an exit clause. You're looking for something, right? But if that's not you, if you don't give like that, if you don't give so much that people who don't know Christ think you're crazy or unresponsible or irresponsible, then you don't know, here it is, you don't know the, I'm going to use the word motor, the motor, the motivation behind God's entire economic system. You don't really get it. Christianity might be an idea to you. It might be a concept. It might be interesting, but there's something vital about it that you don't get. And it's the, it's the thing that moves everything. In our economic system, they talk about the invisible hand moving things up and down. In God's system, it's, it's grace. Grace is the motor. And you might know the word. You might be able to say it and recite it, but you don't know it in your soul. See, Paul doesn't use guilt, though it might work sometimes. He doesn't use pride, though it works a lot of the time. And he doesn't demand every Christian must give this much. He doesn't. Paul reminds the Corinthians and us by extension that God's economy runs on grace. And grace is our motivation for giving. Grace is the motor that moves us to give. It's our reason. It's our purpose. It's our fuel for giving. And no one can be, the only way you can become a Christian is by getting grace. And that grace is going to make you a generous giver or you don't get grace. You don't understand it. Look at verse seven. I want you to see some evidence. What, what does it look like to be changed by grace? To have this motor 
Verse, I'll start in six because I haven't read it yet. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. It means you give, if you, if you give a, a few seeds, expect to res, receive a, a little harvest. If you give a lot, expect to receive a lot. Will, you sow bountifully, will also reap bountifully. Look, each one, that's every person, every Christian, look, must give as he has decided in his heart. Oh, good. I've decided nothing. Okay, hold, hold on. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. So not like, oh, I gotta give. Oh. Like give like we give to the government. Right? No, not under compulsion. If I'm gonna be a member, I gotta give. <sighs> Look what he says. For God loves a cheerful giver, a hilarious giver. God loves a person who loves to give. Why? Because it's evidence that their heart has been changed by God. It is evidence that they know everything I have is a gift from God. And how could I lock my fist around it and say mine when he gave it to me? Parents, do you ever buy your kids some candy? Then you go, hey, son, can I have some? <gasps> it's mine. And you're like, it's whose? Did you take your wallet out? I didn't see that. Right? I'm pretty sure I purchased this thing for you and now you have the audacity to not share with me? Give me the whole box. <laughs> that's what I want to do. And yet that's exactly what we do with God. We would maybe recognize yeah, everything I know is give, I give for him and then how much we give back to him, how much we give to his mission and his priorities in the world. Well, God understands my heart. He knows I, I love him and everything. No, we're deceived. We're, we're blinded by our own greed. God loves a cheerful giver because it's an evidence of a heart that's been changed by grace. God isn't out for your begrudged obedience. He wants you to joyfully give. He wants you to be looking with excitement for new opportunities, people in need that you can meet those needs. He loves the person who loves to give and the person who loves to give, God says, I'm going to multiply seed to that person because they're throwing seed out of my field. So I gotta get more seed to this generous person. And that person sows liberally. And the person who's stingy has Less seed to sow, according to this text, most of the time. Well, that sh should lead us to ask, okay, God loves a cheerful giver. He wants us not to give under compulsion or begrudgingly. He wants us to be happy about it. He wants us to be excited about it. But this should lead us all to ask, well, how does that happen? Right? Because I'm not just writing the check going, ha, ha, yeah, hope this one clears, <laughs> right? How in the world can I become a cheerful giver, a person who actually enjoys giving it away? Look what Paul says in verses 13 through 15. By their approvals of this service, so he's talking about the response of the church in Jerusalem. They're saying, yes, this was a good thing that you gave to meet our needs. 
They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from, look, so this giving, he uses the word submission there to talk about their giving. Your submission, look, that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. <clears throat> your financial giving is flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ. What is the gospel? Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. He came to earth to save us. He came to live a life that none of us could live, a perfect life in obedience to God. Everything he did, God said yes and amen. He pleased God in everything. He never sinned at all. And instead of getting exalted and getting worshiped as the son of God, he was crucified. Why? Because he took our place. Us, greedy selfish sinners who would rather worship money than God, Jesus took our place and took our punishment that we deserve for that sin. He took it on the cross and took the curse of God for us and took our place. And what does he say? He offers us now by faith through his grace, he offers us salvation. He offers us a new standing with God. He offers us a new community. He offers us a new eternal future. He offers us eternal resources in heaven. He offers us peace and joy and gentleness and meekness and self-control. Jesus purchased all of that for us through his blood. That's the gospel. Now here it is. When you confess that, you believe the gospel, giving flows from that. When you say, I was poor and Jesus, the one who was rich, became poor so that I could become rich, that changes me internally into a generous person. Now, look, he's going to say even more. Look at verse 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What? He's talking about their giving. And then he says, he erupts in worship here. He doesn't say, thank God for y'all's generosity. Woo. What a rock star church. No. They're giving generously and he thanks God for God's inexpressible gift. What's that? That's Jesus. That God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son so that we wouldn't perish, but could have eternal life in him, a new community in him. See, listen, here's what it is. In God's economic system, it completely runs on grace. When I receive, when I open my hands up and by faith receive Jesus Christ, that Jesus, the spirit of Jesus comes inside of me and changes me into a merchant of grace. What is a merchant of grace? A merchant is somebody who deals in trade and services, right? And here's the, here's the reality. A Christian is a merchant of grace. We receive it from God and we give it to others. This is why Jesus, his, so much of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is almost... You can't even under, it's like blows your mind because in order to live the way Jesus commands, you have to be on the receiving end of grace. Oh, I don't just tell you to, to uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I want you to love your enemy. If he slaps you on the one side, I want you to give him the other. If he takes your coat, I want you to give him your tunic too. What's Jesus saying? 
when you are receiving grace on this end, right, you're going to be giving a lot of grace on this end. The gospel makes us into merchants of grace. And this is one of the things that's so, so attractive about the church of Jesus Christ when it's believing the gospel and it's operating how it's supposed to. I got on the city the other day and I couldn't believe how many meals were being made right now in our church. We've got people having babies and making meals. People getting new hips and we're making meals. People getting hearts, we're making meals. People, we're just making meals all over the place. Like we're keeping high V in business. <laughs> Now, why? Because we're merchants of grace. We've received the free grace of God and we want to give the grace of God and money is the currency of grace. And so it's our money, it's our time, it's our talent and we're going to give it freely. If you've received it, you're going to give it. Faith opens its hands and receives this gift, this inexpressible gift of Jesus. That's grace. And when we accept it, Jesus comes in and changes us into joyful merchants of grace. Can you imagine how your life would change if you went around looking for opportunities to give? Looking for avenues to be a blessing to someone else? God has given me a little bit of extra. Where can I navigate that? Where does this need to go? Does it need to go to the church or does it need to go to somebody in my missional community? Does it need to go to my neighbor? Does it need to go to that lady in the grocery line? Not to make us great, but so, so that they could worship God and thank God for him meeting their needs. Here's the reality. If you claim to be a Christian and yet you aren't giving joyfully, sacrificially and consistently you have lost sight of God's inexpressible gift you've lost sight of the gospel that's one of the reasons we take communion together every single week Rob already talked about it this is a visual picture of the gospel a person being buried in their sins and the water washing them and they're rising to new life. And every time we come to the Lord's Supper as Christians, we're reminded of God's inexpressible gift. I said it last week, God didn't just tithe his blood. He gave it all for us. And when we come and we take this bread, right, this is, represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. And this and the cup of wine or grape juice that represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us. This is the gift. This is the gift. And as we take that in, it's meant to change us into merchants of grace. Meant to remind us again of his inexpressible gift to us. So as we come this morning, I want you to think about it. I want you to take it. I want you Open up your hands of faith and receive it and take it and eat it and taste it and thank God for it and ask him to make you into a merchant of grace. Father, I thank you for the way that you demonstrate who you want us to be, that you are, you are the gracious giver. You give us 70-degree weather. You give us springtime. You give us 
our ability. You give us our strength. You give us our family. You give us our friends. You give us your word. You give us your son. You give us your spirit that you give, 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 and give some more. And we receive it by grace this morning and we want to take it in. We believe that you are that type of giver. And Father, we don't want it to stop with us. We want to be a merchant of grace. So would you do the work that only your spirit can do in our hearts to make us into this type of person for your glory and the good of your name in our city. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.